This podcast is brought to you by jewishpodcasts.org. Start your very own podcast today at jewishpodcasts.org. Let's go, everybody. Parsha Shmos. We're going to start with Parakei Pasuk Aleph, everybody. Parakei Pasuk Aleph. So this is obviously toward the end of the Parsha. The Achar Bo Moshva Aaron. The Achar means seemingly right after he spoke to the people, gave them the signs. Everything went amazing. Gave them everything they need to know. He then came. Moshe and Aaron came by Yomro Paro and they said to Paro, Koamar Hashem, Alokei Yisrael, this is what Hashem says, the God of Israel, Shalachas Amivi Yachuguli Bamidbor. Send my people out, right? And they should celebrate for me, whatever it's going to be. They should have a holiday for me in the desert itself. Now, Clearly, something's going on over here. Like, it seems like something is missing. What's the after? And this, the way that I just explained it is from the Ibn Ezra. After Moshe and Aaron did everything they did for the people, they immediately went to Paro. They were encouraged, and they said, okay, if they believed us, and they're all in, and they're willing to do everything for us, then for sure Paro will listen. HaKadosh Baruch Hu assured me and Aaron that everything was going to go well. So they said, okay, we're going to go together. We're going to make this happen. The Orachayim HaKadosh says the same. They were told to go to Paro immediately after this. They did it, and everything like that. Moshe saw that Aaron had legitimately proven to the people Right, that they were sent by Hashem. And that wasn't an easy thing to do. Jews are obstinate. Jews have a lot of azus. They have brazenness and they don't always listen. So the fact that Aaron was there and he couldn't send Aaron alone because he was supposed to be with. So he said, okay, we're both going to go. It's going to be me and you, Aaron. We're going to go together in order for this to be successful. As Nayim Latora says, this is the correct order. Whenever we need to convince people that something's there, first you've got to get the people in order. And then afterward, you can go to the leaders in charge and ask them to do something something. For example, if you want to represent your community and you want to speak to, let's say, the chief of police, or you want to speak to the governor, the mayor, or something like that, make sure that your people are on your side first. First, go to the people that you're in charge of. Make sure that everybody has it. Once everybody has the same idea, says Yaznai in the Torah, then you can go to a community member that's going to be in charge, etc., and speak to them about what's going to be. And maybe that in the future, this is going to happen by Mashiach himself. Maybe that idea is going to be there. Rav Hirsch says, this is an un- unbelievably important Pasuk, which explains exactly why Hashem did what he did here. This speech to Paro, I call this over here, I'm quoting Rav Hirsch, was a preliminary effort. This was not about convincing Paro in one go to let the Jews go. Obviously, it's shocking to Paro, whether he did or he didn't know about Yudke Vavke and Hashem. Who knows? We have absolutely no idea what Paro actually knew, what he didn't know. But this was never about Paro. It seems like it is, because it's so important that we convince power to let us go, and if he doesn't, he's going to get punished. It seems like it's about him. But it has nothing to do with power. It has to do with B'nai Yisrael. Says Rapersh, all of this was to show that Paro had no reaction, couldn't care less about the Jews, couldn't care less about their God, and therefore the Makos are going to happen, therefore they're going to be punished severely, and therefore these Makos are going to destroy all of Mitzrayim, and the Jews are going to see that their own oppressors, the people that they went against, are all of a sudden getting all these punishments, they would feel better about themselves. It's about building up B'nai Yisrael's emuna. And the preliminary effort is going to Paro and saying, let the people go. But in all, in all honesty, it wasn't necessary at all. Moshe and Aaron could have gone to the people and said, we're your saviors. Let's walk. Everybody out right now. And when Paro sent his army after them, which he did anyway by Kriyas Yamsuf, then Kaddish Baruch would either kill them with clouds or throw them into the Yamsuf or whatever it is. 
There was no need for these six months to a year with Moshe Rabbeinu going to them. It simply put was just to show what would happen when people argue with Hashem. So again, don't think of it that way. And that's what he says is the idea behind this Pasuk. So what happened to the elders? Meaning it says that there was a Canaan with Moshe and Aaron. Where did the Zikanim go? Why was it only Va'achar Bo Moshe Va'aron? It's them that came. Where did the Zikanim go? So Rashi says they began to slink away one by one. Like they were scared. Let's say there were 70 of them. We don't know if there were 70, 50, 40, 20, 100. Who knows? But the Zikanim who agreed to go with Moshe and Aaron to the palace were following Moshe and Aaron. And one by one, they went up. They went away until finally it was just Moshe and Aaron who walked into the palace. They were punished. They were punished. Because they went away and they didn't believe in HaKadosh Baruch Hu, when Harsinai happened, Moshe was told to go up the mountain, Aaron was told to go near the mountain, and the Zikanim stayed among the Um. You didn't want to come with to the palace, you don't get it to get to go up the mountain either. So they didn't go up the mountain, and that was their punishment for not doing it. It could be that some of the punishment was here, some of the punishment in Shemaim, but regardless, that was the punishment they were supposed to have. Now this Medrash is brought in many different places. It's in Shmos Rabba Pehei Yudzayim, Medrash Gadol, Medrash Yerashirim, Tanhuma, right, in different Yalkutim, it's all over the place. Medrash Gadol says they actually did come with them to the palace, and when they came to the palace, they saw, listen to this, outside the door of the palace, there were different people hanging from a gallows on one side, people with their heads chopped off in another, others with their hands and feet cut off on a third side, and others trampled in the mud on a fourth side. I mean, it was a crazy day at the palace, <laughs> but either way, right, they said to themselves, we would rather remain slaves than let our brothers be tortured like this. As a timeout, it doesn't say that those people were necessarily Jews, which is super interesting. It could be they weren't Jewish. It could be that all the people that came were not actually Jewish. They had nothing to do with Jewish. No, right? It could be. Maybe they were just the Egyptians. But either way, the Zikanim saw this. They turned and they ran away. They said, we can't handle this. We're not going to be able to handle this. Now, the Mizrahi doesn't understand the end of Rashi. Right? If the elders' punishment was that they couldn't approach Harsinai, what about Aram? Moshe went up the mountain on his own. Aaron was not allowed up the mountain. Yes, he came closer than the Zikanim, but he wasn't allowed up the mountain. If the punishment of the Zikanim is you can't come up the mountain because you didn't go to the palace, Aaron went to the palace. Aaron should be able to go up the mountain with Moshe. When Moshe went up to Shemaim for 40 days and 40 nights, Aaron should have gone with. Why is Aaron not allowed on? That's the Mizrahi's question. He does not answer his question. He gives a bunch of different ideas behind the question, but the Mizrahi in the end does not answer his question. He says, I don't get it. What in the world is going on here? That's his question. The Siv Sechachamim, however, answers based on a Pasuk in Yisro, Yud Tes Chavdalad. He says, Moshe was by himself on the mountain. Aaron was in his own area. He climbed up with Moshe. He wasn't allowed to be exactly with Moshe. And the rest of the people were by themselves on the bottom of the mountain. The fact that the elders didn't have a special area, they were grouped with everybody else. That was their punishment. Aaron at least got a spot by himself. But that still begs a question. Why wasn't Aaron with Moshe? If Aaron and Moshe were together this entire time, why is there a problem with this? And why did Aaron not get a spot specifically with Moshe itself? Now, that answer, give me a second, Dave. The Moshe of Zikanim answers this question by saying that Aaron delayed a little bit. We don't see this in the Psukim. I don't see it in the Midrashim. And maybe the Moshe of Zikanim has a Medrash for this. But that Moshe Rabbeinu was hurrying to the palace 
and our own was lagging behind. Maybe it wasn't even a lag behind that we would recognize. Maybe in his mind, Aaron's like, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. He was scared, while Moshe Rabbeinu wasn't. And to be honest, I don't even know if we could blame Aaron for this. Moshe Rabbeinu grew up in the Palace of Paro. He was used to the Palace of Paro. He's a person who knew the Palace of Paro. Aaron didn't. He never grew up there. He was never there that we know of. He never walked in. I would imagine if you're a slave, and granted, Shavit Levy didn't work the way the rest of the people did, but if you're a slave and the king has his palace and somebody tells you we're going in and we're going to talk back to the master, I don't think that's easy for anybody to do, even a person like Aaron who's on the level beyond anything that I could possibly imagine. Nonetheless, that's not going to be easy to do. So when Moshe waltzed in as if he owned the place, it was difficult for Aaron to follow suit. And because he delayed, and again, I'm saying that with air quotes, because obviously this is not something that's really perceptible, but that little bit that was there, therefore Moshe was ahead of Aaron. They were able to go up the mountain, but they weren't go, able to go any further. And before I ask, answer, before I get to your question, Dave, the Divrei David, the Taz, says Nadav and Avihu were also in their own spot in the mountain. There was Moshe all the way up on top, Aaron, Nadav and Avihu, and the rest of the people with the Sekanim on the bottom of the mountain. Maybe they didn't slink away. Maybe Aaron told them to go away. Maybe Nadav and Avihu were never asked to come with in the first place. And that's why none of you were allowed and the Zakanim were embarrassed publicly. They're the ones who got their punishment by Matan Torah itself. But maybe none of you were a little bit different. The Gurariye seems that he says that as well, that they were told to approach while the Zakanim weren't told to approach. But I don't have a full answer for none of you on that. That seems to be a little bit of a question to me. Dave, yeah. No, only for the day of Matan Torah. The 6th slash 7th of Sivan, that's when Aaron went up on the mountain. But not for the whole 40 days and 40 nights. He was allowed to be near the mountain, but he was the only one that was allowed to do so, right? But for the rest of time, when Moshe Rabbeinu went up, he had to come back down and deal with the people. There's no question about that. He wasn't allowed up the mountain the entire time, just during Matan Torah itself. Now, there is a chsamso over here. He answers this in an unbelievable way. He quotes Tosos. It's Tosos in the second parakash that before Sanhedrin was selected, either in Parshish Yisro or Parshvaloscha, but before Sanhedrin was selected, Moshe Rabbeinu took the place of all 71 Zakanim. Technically, Moshe Rabbeinu could judge everyone by himself. He did not need a Bezin a Sanhedrin. When they were chosen, he lost that status. And again, I don't know if this is Parshish Yisro, when Yisro told him to make judges, or in Parshish Baloscha, when HaKadosh Baruch who created the 70 Zakanim. I don't know. I have absolutely no idea. But regardless, that may have started here, where he was considered 71. HaKadosh Baruch who wanted the Zakanim to come with Moshe, and they said no. Why? Because I assume you needed shlichus, some type of shlichus representing the nation, and a shlichus representing the nation required a Sanhedrin. When they went away, Moshe Rabbeinu Memela took over and became 71. Maybe because Aaron's not needed, maybe because Moshe was planning on doing everything himself, whatever it was. But he retained this status until Sanhedrin was formed. At Harsinai, they had not yet achieved that status. Maybe because Yisro came later, maybe because Parshish Balos later, whatever it is, but they hadn't yet achieved it. So they were not allowed to come up with Moshe Rabbeinu. 
had the Sanhedrin been made, they would have been allowed to come up. But as of right now, Moshe Rabbeinu represents the 71. Moshe Rabbeinu is the Sanhedrin, and they were just equal to the rest of the people, and that's that. That's a super answer from the Chassam Sofer, but a little bit different from everything else. Now there's more. The Ayelis HaShachar of Steinman, he always asks these sharp questions. He's like, was there a command for the Zikanim to go to the palace? Did Moshe tell them through prophecy, guys, we are going to the palace. God asked that you come with me. And they didn't listen? And they slunk away out of fear? Guys, tell me, isn't that Chai of Misa? If a Navi tells you to do something and you don't do so out of fear, you could be afraid. You should be killed. So it, it can't be that this is a tzivoy. Maybe they shouldn't be killed bidei adam. Maybe it's misa bidei shamayim. But still you should be killed, right? I guess that it wasn't a tzivoy. But if it wasn't a tzivoy, if it's not a command, then why are they punished for not listening to a non-command? They don't have to listen. I mean, it, it could be that Moshe Rabbeinu said, can you guys come with me? They said, sure. They got scared and they walked away. And Hashem punishes them? What kind of a punishment is that if they weren't commanded to do so? Yeah. Wait, that wording right there, that's, that's where Steinman's question. If you're saying it, it's just not rewarded, but they're not punished, that's not what Rashi says. He says their punishment was on Harsinai. I don't know the Russian right here, but the punishment was on Harsinai. That's the problem. That's exactly what his issue is. Punishment for what? It should be a non-reward. That's what it should be. What exactly is this over here? That's what he says over here. Maybe he said before Mount Torah this din didn't exist, but it's a strange thing altogether. It's a very strange thing. The Rugas Abosam, which is a Hasidic rebel, says there is a reason, I forgot the name, but there's a reason why the Zikadim didn't go with him, and it wasn't just because they were scared. Think of this for a second. These older men, the Zikadim, had a job to do. Moshe Rabbeinu had made this, and I don't know if this measure continues until this point, but it seems like they had one day off during the week, and it was Shabbos. Whether Moshe Rabbeinu did that's Yismach Moshe b'Matanas Chelko, which we say on Shabbos Shacharis by Shimon Asrei. Moshe Rabbeinu was happy with Matanas Chelko. He gave them Shabbos off, and they took one day off a week. What did they do during that one day? The Medrash says they sat and learned with the Zakanim. What did they learn? Perhaps something that was left to them by the Shvatim. Maybe they had certain books. Called one parish, the Sefer Ayasha was around. Maybe Moshe Rabbeinu wrote Eov before that time. But they were learning something on Shabbos. Who taught them that Torah? It was a Zikanim. It was a Zikanim. They did not take that lightly. They didn't just say like, all right, we'll take off on whatever it is. They knew through a Mesorah, through the Shvatim, that Bittal Torah was a terrible sin. And they never wanted to be Mavatal Torah. This is what the Arugas of Osim says. But one can be Mavatal Torah, L'Shem Shemayim. If there's something that a person needs to do, then you're allowed to do it. Maybe this would be a good reason. By the way, as some reasons, like those who follow the Minhagim of Nittal, if that's a Minug, right, and that's your Minug, not to learn on the night of Nittal, whenever that night is, whether it's, you know, Xmas night or whatever it is, right? That is a minig Yisrael Torahu. And in that way, following that minig, right, even though normally we say Bittal Torah is a tr- crazy sin, but that might be a good enough reason. That might be enough to be able to say that you take off for certain, that's what the Rugas of Osim says. But either way, maybe the Zikanim thought to themselves, Sorchei Tzibor, the needs of the Tzibor is a very, very important thing. And maybe that's a good enough reason. Maybe that's something we should be involved with. But then they decided it wasn't enough. Because the Bittal Torah that they had was so important for them, they decided, forget it. We're not going to be Mavatal Torah for Tzorchei Tzibor. So at first they said to Moshe Rabbeinu, sure, we'll go. Tzorchei Tzibor, we'll give up our learning, and we'll go with you to the palace. We understand it's an important thing to do something for the Tzibor. We're willing to do it. And then they sat, as they were going to the palace, they said, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. 
Meaning they weren't doing it just out of fear. Maybe deep down it was fear. But they were doing it because they said, we don't want to be Mavatul Torah, we'd rather not do it. HaKadosh Baruch, who therefore did not allow them to be leaders. Listen, if you want to be a leader of Klal Yisrael and climb the mountain, right? if you want to do that, then you're going to have to give up some of your time of Torah learning. A leader cannot just sit and learn all day. He's got to work with the people. And if you're not willing to do that, then you can't be a leader. You can't be up there. Be with the rest of the people learning Torah the entire time. But you can't be up there with everybody else if you're not willing to do it. And therefore, they weren't allowed to lead the cow. We don't know if they ever were made into the cow. Maybe other people became the Zikanim later. But these people were not because they decided that Bittu Torah was too important for them, which is awesome. You guys, remember that Mordechai, at the end of the Megillah, it says Mordechai was Rotsui Lerov Echov. To most of his brothers. And the Gemara says, He just saved the entire nation. And you mean he was only wanted by rove of the nation? Come on. Well, why is it rove? And the answer is exactly this. Because Mordechai had to give up learning in order to now work as the Grand Vizier of King Ahasuerus. And they did not treat that lightly. They said, you're going to be Mavatul Torah to work for Ahasuerus? Who allows you to do that, Mordechai? And therefore he's Ratzai Lerovechov. The Sanhedrin, the people that were learning all day there, right, had no desire, had absolutely no desire to make Mordechai important in their eyes. They were upset that he gave up learning. That's the concept that the Rigzabosim is using right over here. A little bit more, the Malbim points out that Moshe Rabbeinu did not use the wording that Moshe Rabbeinu gave to him in Perek Gimel Pasuk He said, Hashem Elokeo Evriim Nikra Aleinu appeared to us. He did not say that wording. He says, and this is what the Malbim says, it's possible that wording was only going to be used if the Zikanim came with them. The Zikanim didn't come with them, so he changed the wording a little bit. The wording that he said, right, I don't think I have it right over here, but the wording that he said was a little bit different. He should have said, And he didn't say that because the Zikanim weren't there. Those nine Torah says the exact same thing, and then it's Siv, says Moshe Rebbe was partially to blame for this. When B'nai Yisrael, HaKadosh Baruch Hu told them that B'nai Yisrael were going to listen, and then the elders would join them and go to power together, Moshe Rabbeinu, out of his tremendous humility, wanted Aaron to speak instead. Because Aaron was speaking, the Zikanim lost the gall to come with him. Had Moshe said, I'm going in myself, and they looked at him and they said, but you have a speech impediment. You're going to speak to Paro? But he said, yes, I'm going to speak to Paro. Right? He would be able to knock down his humility, then the Zikanim out of reverence for Moshe Rabbeinu being willing to go, even though he had a speech impediment, they would have come with him. But since Aaron was going with him, he's to blame for everything that happened after that. It's an amazing idea that the Nitziv says Moshe Rabbeinu was partially responsible for the Zikanim not going with. Okay, all of that was to try to get the Zikanim. Why the Zikanim didn't get what they needed and what happened to them? But what happened? How did they get into the palace? And this took a very big, deep dive into a bunch of Midrashim. So I'm going to give a bunch. I'm going to try to combine. This is a combination of around seven different Midrashim together. But there's quite a bit over here. And obviously, it's not easy for slaves to get into their master's house, let alone into a palace. What happened exactly? So say for a Yasher. Says the Moshe Aaron approached the palace. There were two young lions that were chained to the gates that would not allow anyone to get through unless you had special permission from Paro, who gave the people certain lechoshim, these whispers, these things to say that silenced and froze the lions. I guess out of magic. But Chaim Paltiel says if their hands were empty, then the lions would attack them. If they had a gift for Paro, then the lions would allow them to walk through. Moshe obviously did not have anything in his hands as a gift for Paro. He had the staff in his 
hands. What he did was he waved the staff in front of the lions in the air and the chains holding the lions back disappeared. Miam Loez says that Moshe waved his staff at them and then he, they became calm as lambs. I think we're going to the same idea over here. Either way, he freed the lions or they became super calm. Right? Miam Loez says, Moshe Rabbeinu, I'm sorry, that's a Miam Loez. He then went over to them untied their chains, if they were weakened, right, and set them free. So either the staff let go of their chains, or he undid their chains. There were other wild animals around the palace. All the wild wild animals ran over to him. They rubbed up against their ankles and started kissing their feet, including lions. Never had my feet kissed by a lion before. I'm assuming it's quite tickly from their whiskers. I would assume that that's that. So they were there. Midrash Divrei Ayamim Lamosha, which does exist, Otsar Amidrashim brings it, says they were always tied up, but when the guards heard that Moshe and Aaron were coming, they released the lions to go eat Moshe and Aaron right before they came to the palace, and instead, they approached Moshe with fear and started licking his hands. Okay, so either way, this is a good thing, right? You have these lions that are running up to him. Then what happened? They followed Moshe and Aaron into the throne room of Paro, panting like dogs and playing with little things like little cats, like little thread balls all around them. Rav Chaim Paltiel says they actually led Moshe and Aaron to the throne room and nobody stopped them because they had two lions that were standing in front of them growling at anybody that stood in their way so the guards couldn't do anything. Paro was absolutely shocked when he saw them, not only because of the lions, but because Moshe and Aaron looked like they were angels of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. He asked them what they wanted and Aaron responded with this Pasuk, right? It wasn't Moshe that responded, but Aaron responded. Paro was so scared at the moment, he asked them to leave. He said, please leave right now and come back tomorrow so I can deal with you tomorrow. Moshe and Aaron leave, left out of respect for the king. So they left. They returned the very next morning. Meanwhile, Paro called in all of his chachamim, his yoatzim, all the different people, the necromancers that he had, magicians, sorcerers, whatever, called everyone into the palace, right? And that included Bilam and his two sons, Yonus and Yambrus, who may have met Moshe Rabbeinu before when he was the king of Kush. Either way, he told them all what happened, and they were all absolutely shocked after hearing what happened with the lions. And Bilam said, this man must be a great sorcerer like myself. I had those lions under my magic, and now this guy is able to take them into his magic. He must be a greater sor- great sorcerer like myself. He told Paro to summon them the next day so they could te- test them in their magics, and that's exactly what Paro did. Miamlois and Amidrash Avkir says that the palace of Paro had 400 gates, with a hundred in each direction. Each gate had 60 armed guards who were ready for war and clearly very strong. Now, that's a lot. 400 times 60 guys. Okay, that's 24,000 guards that were outside the palace. Now, in Torah Shlema, he brings another version of this Medrash that says nine gates and six guards at each gate. That is quite a difference. <laughs> quite a difference. Because nine times six, by my math, 54. You gotta carry that one. Remember to carry that one. You got 54 altogether, right? At each, all together, the guards that were there. Either way, Moshe and I were very afraid when they saw this. Whether it was 54 guards or 24,000 guards, they were unbelievably scared. Until the Malach Gavriel 
came down from Shemayim and brought them through the guards into the throne room. It sounds like he made them invisible. He gave them an invisible invisibility cloak, allowed them to go straight through the doors, straight through the guards, and that's that. When Paro saw them standing right there in front of him, he immediately called over his guards, and that is when Moshe and Aaron immediately disappeared. Nothing about lions. No lions or anything. Only about them disappearing right in the throne room, etc. He hanged some of the guards that led them through, killed others by the sword, and fired others. The next day, Moshe and Aaron were brought again right past all the rest of the guards. They came in front of Paro up to the throne and Paro again called out for his guards who told him these men must be unbelievable sorcerers because for two days in a row they had not seen a thing. And Gabriel had it. Meanwhile, What's going on in the palace room? What happened on that second day? The Chizkuni says that they came on the birthday of Paro, which, according to two different Mephorshim that I saw, was on Rosh Hashanah. His birthday was on Rosh Hashanah, if they use the Hebrew calendar, you know, the lunar calendar as opposed to the, the, the solar calendar. The Bible says it was a huge celebration with officers and kings from around the world coming to the palace to give him presents. Seems according to the other Midrashim, the presents were beautiful crowns. Each one of them brought a crown for Paro and also to bring him honor. They also brought their idols with them. Each one of them held their idols and they were all mishubid to Paro. They were all subservient to Paro. He ruled all over, over all of them with a mighty fist. Moshe came in that second day, as we said above, right? That second day, whether they came in the first day and they disappeared or they came in the first day and they were asked to leave, whatever it was. And Paro assumed they were coming with everybody else to give him a present, right? That Moshe were going to come in with a present. So he told them to approach. When he realized that they came in with no present and no letter from their kingdom, he asked them, what's going on with you guys? He became upset. What do you guys want? And that's when they responded with this Pusik. God has appeared to us and God told us to let the people jo- go so they can serve me in the midbar. That's when this Pusik begins and all of that right there. The Miyam Louise continues that the kings and the officers were unbelievably frightened by Moshe and Aaron. The old Osios de Rebbe Akiva and Os Kuf says that this was the 70 Sofrim of Paro, 70 scribes of Paro who all knew a different language and were always with the king. Remember, Paro knew all the languages from Yosef Atzadik. So apparently he had Sofrim in every language and they were all there in front of the king itself. They were very tall, Moshe and Aaron. I mean, if Moshe was 10 amos tall, we're talking about a 18 to 20 foot person individual. I mean, that makes that Spurs player look crazy. What's that guy's name? The guy who looks like a little stick? What? Yeah, Wembenyama, right? Yeah, that guy looks like, honestly, like you took a mop stick. <laughs> you just like sort of put a... a, a I, I was skinny when I was when I was younger. That is crazy skinny, and I can't believe it. Either way, but Moshe and Aaron were these twenty foot tall people that are walking inside. Their beards were very long and white. Their eyes shone like bright lights, and their faces shone as well. Moshe's staff was glowing, and the names of Akharish Baruch that were written on it stuck out for everyone to see. Every time they spoke. The kings trembled and they had no idea why. The kings began to take off their crown, bow down to them, and the crowns that they were going to bring to Paro, they took it off, gave it over to Moshe Rabbeinu and Aaron, and asked them to put it on themselves. Right? That's that. Even Paro lost his self-control. Remember, 
Paro convinced everybody that he was a god and never had to go to the bathroom. He would go to the bathroom early in the morning and late at night. He would never go to the bathroom in front of other people. And right now, he had a tremendous need to go to the bathroom out of absolute fear. Luckily, he had a secret passageway right behind his throne that would take him to a secret little bathroom that was right behind his throne, you know, whatever it was. And obviously, he had guards that emptied it out once in a while and then were killed afterward. But, but he had that little place right behind it. So he quickly went to his secret bathroom right behind the throne, went to the bathroom there, and while he was sitting there, says the Medrash, this is in four different places, 12 rats came in and began to bite him. According to, again, Rav Chaim Paltiel, it was two rats specifically that bit him while he was going to the bathroom, which is exactly what happened, if you'll remember, to the Plishtim after they took the Aron Kodesh in Shmuel Aleph, by Elia Cohen and Chofni and Pinchas, that the rats were biting the Pelishtim. They also had hemorrhoids, so they kind of added that on as well. I don't think Paro had that yet, right? He, lots of other Makos, but this one didn't happen just yet. But the rats came and bit him itself, causing him to cry out in pain. The soldiers ran into that area, opened up the door, and you saw Paro standing there with his birthday suit on, with rats hanging from him, right, on his backside, he was tremendously embarrassed on his birthday in front of everybody there, right? And embarrassing him publicly in the throne room when everybody saw that he was doing, what he was doing. I'm assuming that that's the origin of the song, It's My Party and I'll Cry If I Want To. I'm not positive. I, I, I didn't actually look up the song, so I don't know. But I'm pretty sure that that's where it came from. I'm pretty sure that that's it. But I'm not positive. That's all from the Amalays. It is such an unbelievable bunch of Midrashim. Now, there's a lot behind this. And I don't want to unpack all of this because the truth is I have a crazy amount of Shatim in this. There's an awesome Ben Ishchai that talks about how the Achbarim is the Chaf added to the word Ivrim, specifically 12 or 2, representing possibly Yehuda and Levi, right? Or whatever it is. But there's 12 for the Shvatim itself, and that Ivrim and Achbarim, because he turned, Paro turned the Shalom that they had together with one another into a Michshol, right? Turn the letters of Shalom around, and you get Michshol if you add on a Chaf, by having them go ahead and build all the things and becoming slaves to them. Regardless, there's an unbelievable Ben Ishchai. There's some unbelievable Perushim over here, but there's a lot. There is a lot to unpack here. I'm going to leave it as is, because there's so much more in this Pasuk. Just to, un- to take care of some of the other stuff in the Pasuk, there's a few phrases that are very questionable. Why call Hashem the God of Yisrael? Isn't Hashem the God of everything? Why would they say Hashem Elokei Yisrael? Right? That He's the one. Just say Hashem Elokei Olam. That's the easy way to do it. Right? Why would they say it that way? The Ibn Ezra says, because this name was not known by Paro or the people around him, they only knew him as Elokei Yisrael because they did remember Yaakov Avinu who came down to Mitzrayim and Yosef attacked him. They might have wanted to forget about it, but they knew there was a guy named Yaakov and a guy named Yosef who believed in HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and therefore he said he's Hashem Elokei Yisrael. They would remember those stories of what Yosef did, what Yaakov did, and perhaps it would remind Paro of what happened before. That seems to be how the Ibn Ezra is answering this question. That Yonas Gershuni says Moshe is trying to tell Paro that a Kurdish Baruch has been involved in the Ivrim slavery from beginning to end. You thought you were in charge, Paro. You thought you were doing everything yourself, right? But no. Paro... The Jews have been supported by HaKadosh Baruch Hu in a natural and a supernatural way. You tried destroying them, and it didn't work. You tried destroying me, 
and somehow I survived and was thrown into the river. You saw kids being sprouted out from the ground as if they were grass. You tried making sure the husbands and wives wouldn't have children, and they had six at a time, which is a blessing and a curse at the same time, right? But you had all these kids being born one after the other. Everything you did came your bed, the came your throats, and you saw it yourself, Paro. Every single edict you made, every gazer you made against the Jews, somehow backfired, and that's exactly what he's saying. He's combining Yud Kei with the shame of Elohim, with Elokei Yisrael, right? And he said, it's all one. There's Rachamim with the Din. While you're sitting there and you're getting that Midas Din, you're getting Rachamim at the same time. I'm going to tell you a quick story about Rachamim and Din. Just the other day, right? Because there were a bunch of flights that I had to take this whole year all over the place. So I all of a sudden had like a bunch of things on United. And now I'm like all the way up there when it comes to getting seats, right? So I had a flight on Wednesday morning. And while I was going to the airport early in the morning, all of a sudden I get a text from United, you have been upgraded. So I'm like, oh my gosh, that's unbelievable rock. I mean, I'm so happy. I'm going to get like one of those big seats. And I'm going to be super happy. It's only an hour and a half flight from, it was from Baltimore to Chicago. But I was like super happy. I'm like, okay, great. I'm going to be up. I'm upgraded. That's absolutely unbelievable. Got on the plane, super happy, sat down in my seat, stared at everybody coming onto the plane and saying, I'm better than you, right? As everybody was walking through, because that's what you're spot, pretty sure that's required when you're sitting in first class, right? Or you act embarrassed when they look at you and hate, say, think I hate you, because it is a tremendous eye and horror that you're getting on the plane first. And the guy sitting next to me was a guy who clearly had a snoring problem. How do I know he had a snoring problem, you ask? Well, I'm glad you asked. This guy put on his big old headphones, and I have never heard such snoring in my life. I have never, never, ever heard. Planes are loud. This guy's snoring was louder than the plane. He was, uh, I can't even copy it. It was so bad. It was a snorting and there was like some stuff going on in there. I don't know what was happening and I couldn't sleep. I'm dead tired. I got up at 2.35 in the morning, 3.35 in the morning their time, right? And I'm so unbelievably tired and I'm getting on the plane and I'm sitting back there and I'm like, I can't do anything. I call over the steward and I'm like, steward, right? Because again, first class. And I asked the guy, the guy comes over. I'm just like, can you give me earphones, anything? So he gave me earphones, right? I didn't have like both headphones, right? So I put them inside the thing and I turned up the volume to the highest thing that I could get. I don't even know what I was watching. It didn't make a difference because I turned the screen down all the way to black because they don't watch on planes, right? So that's right there. I turned it all the way down to black, listened to something, some stupid thing that was going on in the loudest, so he couldn't even hear what was going on in dialogue and tried to sleep to get it. His snoring was louder than the dialogue in my ears. It was unbelievable. The people on the next side of me, like looking at me, they're just like shaking their heads at me. Like I had anything to do with that guy. Like I had anything. I have never had a worse plane ride in my life. That is Rachamim of Akadosh Baruch Hu and pure Midas Adin at the exact same time. Had I sat in my normal seat, I probably would have been fine. I would have slept like that, you know, like with a little crick in my neck and I would have been fine. I would have fallen asleep, passed out for about an hour and 45 minutes. But because I was sitting in an unbelievable seat that a Kaddish Baruch Hu gave me, which I thank him for every single day, because normally I'm not going to sit next to this guy, right? This is the result. And if I do sit next to this guy, next time I'm going to just hit him in the stomach and wake him up and just say like, dude, come on, you got to fix that. Anyway, that was really, really bad. That is the idea behind Hashem Elohim. Just, I think, for Paro, it was a little bit more extreme. The Grizz says, what exactly was the Kaddish Baruch Hu's plan over here? Was he expecting Paro to listen to two strange men that walk inside and are just like, let the Jews go? And he's like, oh, I had no idea. Please let them go. Refers said that that was just a preliminary experience to be able to go in. But obviously, says the Grizz, the Briskorov, there's no way for them to listen to it. He says that Moshe asked, 
Kentaro to believe in one God that rules over the entire world. That's all he wanted him to do. Believe in a God. The Eloke Yisrael is the one God of the entire world. Are you willing to take that upon yourself? Yes, Paro. If you're willing to take it upon yourself, we'll talk about the details later. Yes, he wants them to have a Chag. I'm not saying that the people are going to leave forever. He wants them to have a Chag. If you're willing to believe in a God, you will have a Shaykhis with them. You'll have a connection, and maybe there will be, the Egyptians will be with Klal Yisrael in the future in some way lost at level. And that's what he was asking them to do. Are you willing to allow these children of the Avos to have a Chag in the Midbor for the one God who's in the world? And when Paro claimed he did not believe in such a God, I believe in the Nile, I believe in myself, I believe in sheep, I believe in all these other things, but I don't believe in a God, Moshe was forced to show him signs that he was the true messenger, that there is a true God, and those are the three signs. And that's for another time, why those three signs specifically represent the true God of Israel being the God of the entire world. But either way, when he still didn't listen to the signs, and that's it, that's when HaKadosh Baruch Hu said, so Paro, you're out. You no longer have a shaykhus with the Jews. You will no longer have a connection with them and an ability to join them lost at level. Instead, your punishment is to get these makos and to be around for that idea, for that, that. Rabbi Victor Miller says, obviously Moshe's job was to tell Paro that a Kaddish Baruch who existed and he wanted them to leave Egypt, etc. And it seems like he failed. Doesn't it seem like he failed? Because in the end, he said no. Right? It seems like there was absolutely nothing there. And in the end, Paro said no. So it sounds like, okay, Moshe didn't, didn't do what he wanted to. And again, the way we said it from Rehersh before, it is a little bit different. The p- plan was never about Paro, it was about the Israel. But Victor Miller says an unbelievable thing. And he says, similar to what Rehersh says before, his real job was to show B'nai Yisrael how important it was to give kavod l'malchus, kavod to the king, and then, when the king doesn't agree, to walk away and say, okay, you don't want to be with us? We're going to do our thing. That is exactly what he tried to show. The Ikka was always for B'nai Yisrael, similar to Rav Hirsch. The Ikka was never for Paro. But Paro had to have a chance. There always should be a chance. Give them an opportunity, and if they take it, great, and if they don't, you leave. And that's exactly what happened in Harsinai, Right? HaKadosh Baruch who went to the other nations, however that happened, through Malachim, through dreams, through maybe Levium that were emissaries that went throughout the world, whoever, however it was, the nations were given an opportunity. You want to join us? You can. You may not be what we are, but you'll be able to, you'll be able to join us. You'll be able to be a part of us. When they said no, the answer was no. The answer is no forever. And that's that. Rokeach says, interestingly, that the words Hashem Elokei Yisroel, those words, Hashem Elokei Yisroel, is the gematria of 613. 613 for the mitzvahs that they were supposed to keep. So clearly there's a connection here. And I think that's what Rabbi Victor Miller and Rabbi Hirsch is saying as well. This is all leading up to B'nai Yisrael getting the Torah. Does Paro want to join or does he not want to join? And the answer obviously was absolutely not. The last thing we'll say is what exactly is a Chag? What is this Chag that we're referring to over here that they should do a Chag via Choguli Bamidbor? What exactly is the Chag? So the Ibn Ezra and the Chizkuni both say this refers to a Korban. They give examples. Isru Chag Ba'avosim, which we say at the end of Hallel, which is a super interesting way of looking at that word and how to translate that Pasuk. Or Chagim Yinokfu, which is a Pasuk in Yeshaya. They say both of those. Kadosh Baruch Hu wanted them to go into, er- into the Midbar to go bring Korbanos. That's the Ibn Ezra and the Chizkuni, those Rishonim. The Torah to me wonders why there's a Havamina for Chag to mean anything else than a Korban. There's a half a meaning in the Gemara that it means dances. 
that they would just do dances in the midbar. How in the world could that be a havamina? How could that be that they were going to go to do something like that? That can't be. That's a, such a strange thing to suggest or to go into. A, so he says the following. Torah Tamima says, it's possible that there's a reference to a Gemara in Sukkah that we all know. The last parak in Sukkah, Nun Alvam and Alv specifically, talks about what happened at the Simchas Beis Shoeva. Throughout the Gemaras there, super interesting, by the Simchas Beis Shoeva, there were celebrations going on. But the celebrations were mostly the Gedolim of Klau Yisrael juggling and doing things in the middle of the circle. It wasn't about the people, which is shocking. And the Hasidim still do that today on Simchas Torah. They watch the Rebbe hold the Sefer Torah and spell out the name Yud, Hey, and then Vav and Hey on the ground with his feet. If you're supposed to watch the, the Hasidim dance with the Sefer Torah, and you'll see them make the Yud and the Hey and the Vav and the Hey with their feet as they go on the ground. That's what they're supposed to do. It could be that that was what was expected over here as well. Maybe the Chag was not Korbanos, says the Gemara, and the suggestion is. Maybe the Chag is going to be literally making dances dances with everybody there so that they could see the greatness of the Gedolim of Moshe and Aaron and perhaps the others Nadav, Avihu and the Zikanim and that they would do that maybe that was Avinah Kamash Malan it's Korbanos but the Havamina was that it actually was a dance Rav Hirsch again says a Chag Chog is really like a circle and he says it's really about a center being filled with godliness. That every Chag, when we come together, it's sort of like an aguda of people, a group of people coming together in one circle, celebrating the midpoint. The midpoint being a Kaddish Baruch Hu. This is hinted to in the Gemara Tainus, where it says in the future, we'll all see a Kaddish Baruch Hu in the middle of a circle. We will be all equidistant, because the radiuses of a circle are obviously all equal to one another. We will all be in one circle around him, with a Kaddish Baruch Hu in the center, everybody equidistant, everybody equal, right? The true equality of everybody having some shaykhs to a Kaddish Baruch Hu, right? And Rav Hirsch says, that's what it's supposed to be. The circles that we dance, when we dance around a chasen or a kawa, the circles that we have on Simchas Torah around the Sefer Torah are supposed to represent that idea of what a chag is. It's all about what's in the center. It's all about the midpoint of that circle. And that midpoint over here would have been a Kaddish Baruch about the Torah itself, and that's that. The Grizz, there's an Abar Benel over here, right, that goes into why they specifically had to go into the desert. I think it's kind of obvious. There's no way they could have done this with Paro and all the people right there. Forget about the Avodah Zarah that was inside the area. It's obvious that they couldn't allow their masters to see such a thing, or they would have gone, they, they would have just gone ballistic. It had to be out in the midbow where nobody would have seen it. According to this idea, they would have come back. And this is a story for another time. But this was not for them to go out forever. This was them for a few days, three days maybe, to go out and to come back, to celebrate, and then to come back. Only later, after the Makos, did a Kaddish Balkan decide they don't deserve for the Jews to come back. Ellie, what were you going to ask? They had their own section. What? Who had their own... T- I mean, Bnei Yisrael. There was no question that there were many people in Bnei Yisrael that were living in Mitzrayim at the time. Whether it was Ephraim and Menashe's Shvatim or the other Bnei Yosef that were living in Mitzrayim proper, you're right. Many of the people lived in Goshen. But it's clear that they were... They started to move in and there was still some type of assimilation in where they were living. But yes, you're right. The ghetto was in Goshen. The actual ghetto where the people were were in Goshen itself. Those people, though, clearly had shaykhos with everybody else. Right? There was something behind it. That also explains how the Makos could have affected the Jews, according to Ibn Ezra, who says that the Makos did affect every Jew except for Makos Arov. They were living among the Egyptians in one way or another. But we'll stop with that for right now, everybody. Have a great Shabbos and let's stop in Marav.